prescribed fire, fire on the landscape, planned, both planned and unplanned fire um, is mostly desirable. Of course, there are outliers. And during the hot summer months on windy days, when fire gets too close to our communities or threatens infrastructure or property or crops and fields, um, certainly that's undesirable. But a majority of the fire that happens on the planet is beneficial, um, both to the people and the vegetation, both to the flora and the fauna, the plants and the animals. Welcome to the very first episode of Living with Fire, a new podcast that aims to deepen our understanding of wildfires and the critical role they play in America's forests, lands, and communities. I'm your host, Amanda Monti, and today you'll hear my conversation with Jeremy Bailey, a prescribed fire manager with the Nature Conservancy who played a huge part in starting the Prescribed Fire Training Exchange Program, or TREX. Jeremy will talk more about the TREX program during our conversation, but for those who are unfamiliar with it, it's a program that gives wildland firefighters an opportunity to develop themselves as both firefighters and leaders, while also participating in and learning more about prescribed fire. Prescribed fire reintroduces fire into the landscape in a controlled manner, and its benefits are innumerable. It clears dense underbrush, creates and improves habitat for various species of wildlife, and is generally considered one of our best tools for lessening the impact of future wildfires. Prescribed burns are usually planned for months or years in advance and are only done when conditions are a perfect mix of dry enough for trees, grasses, and shrubs to burn, but not so dry or hot for it to burn too intensely. In this episode, Jeremy talks a bit more about his inspiration for starting the TREX program in 2007, his accomplishments with the program in that time, and how the perception of prescribed fire has changed since the program's inception. I'll let him take it from here. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, I was really fortunate um, back in in middle school and high school to have a volunteer fire department that supported basically a junior firefighter program. And so um, throughout high school, I was involved um, once a week in um, in a junior firefighter program. And so I was I was able to gain a lot of entrance in interest and basic knowledge there. I started working in volunteer fire departments once I turned 18. I continued that through university. Mm-hmm. And then once I, once I got out of school, I got a job um, with the U.S. Forest Service and worked for hotshot crews and helicopter crews. I supervised a fire use module. Um, my progression towards uh, a more um, conservation-based fire management approach, I think, really started in the in southwest in the southwest United States, where ponderosa pine forests are a fire adapted ecosystem. And so, even when I was working for the hotshot crews, we would do a lot of prescribed fire, and I started to understand the role of fire in our ecosystems. And then I started working for the National Park Service, and um, and basically became a burn boss and supervised uh, a lot of crews that were implementing prescribed fire. And then, um, and then I joined the Nature Conservancy in 2007, I believe, and, uh, and, and kind of began uh, my role there as a training officer and um, as a fire manager, and really started to do a much deeper dive into the world of conservation and fire management. Were you solely responsible for starting TREX through the Nature Conservancy, or was that a program that was already sort of off the ground when you got there? 
I, with the help of my supervisor and a lot of other team members, I, I led the initiative and started the training exchange program. Yes, it was based off of a lot of the work that I had learned within the fire use modules, uh, which uh, came out of the National Park Service prescribed fire program and the wildland fire use program. But, um, but yes, I, I started Trex in the Nature Conservancy back in 2007 when I first joined the organization. The training exchange, or Trex for short, uh, is really designed to create a learning environment that allows a variety of people to come together and share what they know and learn from others. So we don't, we don't set up these two-week Trex events as teachers and students. We really set them up as participants and everybody has something to share and everybody has something to learn. And you can come in with the highest qualification and still learn from somebody who's been doing it just as long but doesn't have any qualifications, but they've been doing the burning on the landscape in their place. There are many people who burn annually on their place and that's the only place they burn, but that's the place they know and they're the best fire practitioners for that place. And there's a lot to learn from everybody. And so the training exchange will typically bring 25 to 75 people together for two weeks at a time. We spend several days basically training the crews and getting familiar with our equipment and our leadership. Um, we spend several days learning about the local ecosystem, the challenges and the benefits of fire on that landscape. We take a couple of field trips and we look at some damaging wildfire. We'll look at a beneficial prescribed fire. And then we spend the, you know, the, the remaining 80% of that time together burning. And we really make it an experiential learning event where everybody gets put in leadership positions and then everybody gets put in followership positions. And so you rotate through leadership and followership from day to day, and then you're burning um, in the community or on the National Forest or with the Park Service or all of those things. Some of our best events, the participants are able to go do a little bit of work on private land, a little bit of work on state land, a little bit of work on federal land, maybe get to work some work with some private industry. Um, and so the more diversified the experience, the better the experience for the participants and the more learning that happens. And, you know, in the end, what we're really trying to do is inspire people to feel more comfortable and more confident in, in getting fire back into the landscape. You know, we, we do have three primary goals for every trek, and that's training, treatments, and outreach. The training happens when you put people together with varied levels of experience and you ask them to swap stories and, and teach each other what they know. The treatment happens when we mobilize these folks and we get a lot of good work done on the ground. And then the outreach, we do the outreach a couple of different ways, but the easiest way to describe it is we, we try to bring in outside reporters and journalists. We try to bring in other managers and we basically try to demonstrate and show um, the benefits of community-based fire. And so that's training, treatments, and outreach. Those are our three goals of the TREX program. And I'm sure, I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't know how much it's changed since you started it, but I'm curious what your objectives were when you first began and kind of how the program has evolved since then. The, uh, when we, when we first started, uh, exploring the idea of 
mobilizing um, mixed agencies and organizations. We had a very specific goal to exchange um, professional training opportunities between burn bosses and incident commanders. So the Nature Conservancy, which is a conservation-based fire, which is a conservation organization and does a lot of fire management, has a lot of qualified burn bosses. Our federal partners have a lot of incident commanders and both of those organizations lack the other opportunities oftentimes. And so we were trying to exchange, basically do a professional exchange at that higher level. But really within the first two or three events, what we learned is that throughout the experiential range of fire practitioners, everybody wants more experience everybody wants to learn from others and everybody really wants to go to other places and learn about fire in different places because then they're able to bring home unique lessons and apply it at their in their home country or their home area or their home unit and so once we realized that our our idea was really uh rudimentary small and just focused on two professional positions we immediately started to expand it um, and that took several years to kind of grow it out to what we see today. I, I know you end up running into a lot of sort of logistical barriers and all of this as well, um, yeah. such as, you know, I mean, just who you're working with, the agencies that you're working with, the sort of red tape that you're dealing with. And Lania and I talked a little bit about this and how, and, and I've actually seen some writing of yours as well about how we shouldn't be running away from these, these hurdles and how we can maybe learn to work within these parameters. Um, so I'm curious, you know, what are some of those hurdles that you're facing and like kind of how, you're, how are you kind of tackling those as you go? And maybe even are there any policies that you've had a hand in changing or in making a little bit easier in terms of these ambitious prescribed fire plans? Yes, so you're right, Lenny and I have both been really over the last decade trying to highlight how uh, firefighters, fire managers, and to some degree fire practitioners allow the barriers to prevent them for, from getting the work done. And there, there really are an, um, just an unlimited amount of excuses and barriers and challenges that get in the way when you're trying to put fire on the ground. And it's really only the folks who uh, make it their priority and and deliberately um, approach each barrier and and um, work hard to overcome it that are able to achieve regular fire and uh and and what i think what i think our biggest barrier is still currently is making prescribed fire a priority and assigning resources to it both financial and staffing resources um, if if a fire manager, if a community, if an individual, if a private landowner, if a district ranger or a park superintendent, if, if anybody in a leadership position makes it a priority and, and then assigns that priority to their staff, the, the burning will get done. What happens oftentimes is that uh, someone or some group of people along the way, including the fire managers and the firefighters themselves, will elevate some barrier or challenge or concern and um and then that that just stops the momentum and and the burning won't get accomplished mm -hmm. yeah and 
what are those, why should we be prioritizing this, I guess? Um, I guess I should have gone into this earlier, but like, why do you feel it's important to prioritize prescribed burning and to uh, further adapting ourselves to, and our communities to fire? This is something you're I right. can we ask kind, like, right of, off the bat. <laughs> yeah, we, we, you're right. We, we jumped in just assuming that prescribed fire is desirable. But you know, I, I wake up every morning thinking, uh, making that assumption. Prescribed fire, fire on the landscape, planned, both planned and unplanned fire um, is mostly desirable. Of course, there are outliers. And during the hot summer months on windy days, when fire gets too close to our communities or threatens infrastructure or property or crops and fields, um, certainly that's undesirable. But a majority of the fire that happens on the planet is beneficial. Um, both to the people and the vegetation, both to the flora and the fauna, the plants and the animals. Um, uh, most of our uh, ecosystems in North America and many of our ecosystems around the planet are fire adapted, meaning that they have evolved with fire and the plants and animals and even the humans have adapted to that fire and benefit from fire. So when I think about fire, um, it, it's all, it always brings uh, a, a pleasant thought to mind. It always brings me a pleasant feeling. And when I think about fire, I think about a, I think about a natural process occurring on the landscape, maybe how other people might think about rain and how it, how it um, revitalizes the landscape. And I think about fire in the same way. I know not everybody has that opportunity. Not everybody has had the types of experiences that I've had with fire. Um, and so many people, when they think about fire, they think about destruction or damage or, um, you know, just the negative consequences of fire. Right. So how can we sort of, um, I think revolutionary is a word that you've used to describe like the way that we should be perceiving wild or prescribed burns. So how can we sort of revolutionize our idea of prescribed burning and make it so that we maybe have a better public perception or maybe the agencies are a little more willing to partake in these ambitious prescribed burning projects, but how can we change the perception? Well, I, I mean, following your lead with the word revolution, the, the, the revolution is giving fire back to the people in a way that they can use it routinely, regularly, um, and with permission uh, in a safe way that achieves their goals and objectives. Um, many of the large agencies, government agencies, and even some of the large organizations that are using fire, they're really trying to reduce the risk of catastrophic fire. But there are dozens, really hundreds, if not thousands of reasons to use fire on your property or in your landscape, in your prairies, in your woods, in your pastures. And so um, it's not just about mitigating the threat of catastrophic wildfire. It's really about providing a benefit to the land and the people and the animals and the vegetation that you know exist there and benefit from, from the effects of fire. And so we, we need people and families and communities to be using fire when they've decided that it's appropriate for them. And we need laws and policies and funding streams and um, trained and equipped people and notice I don't say qualified, but trained and equipped people who can accomplish the mission. And why did you avoid qualified there? Well, qualifications 
are good in certain circumstances and the national qualifications have been designed around firefighters cooperating in high risk situations around the country where they where uh, um, a team of firefighters might come from Nebraska or Tennessee and mobilize down to New Mexico or a team of firefighters might come from California and head to Kentucky. And so when those teams come together, if they're all working on the same system of qualifications and language, then they're able to interact during uh, a relatively dangerous situation like an unwanted wildfire that's threatening a community and they can safely accomplish their mission. Well, planned burning is not that way. Planned burning, you know, you, you have a plan, you have uh, goals and objectives that are set out by the community, by the landowners, by the people who are managing the resource. You choose your time, you choose your day, you choose your time of day, you choose your season, you choose the weather conditions that you wanna burn under so that you can achieve your goals and, that you're, and your objectives. And so that it becomes a much more managed event. And those managed events don't need the same level of qualifications and, and oversight um, that the wildfire system needs. So many times, um, men and women who have uh, learned from their parents or their grandparents on how to use fires, this is true in ranching communities, this is true in tribal and Native American communities here, this is true in indigenous communities in Australia and other places around the world, um, you know, they learn the skills that they need from the previous generation, from their own family members, from their own communities. And those are the right skills. That is how you safely deploy fire in those places. And so they don't have the same qualifications that a government firefighter might have, but they definitely have the skills and the knowledge, and they're definitely the appropriate person to be putting fire back into the landscape. So um, a lot of the questions that I've been receiving about prescribed fire is how we're, we're incorporating indigenous and cultural burning. And I mean, I get this question a lot and people are really curious. So I'm curious how you've sort of integrated cultural burning into the TREX framework. So in short, by engaging uh, people who are um, knowledgeable and practice cultural burning mm -hmm. is how we've integrated into the training exchange program. Uh, more specifically, in certain places where we have those partnerships with tribes or individuals um, or tribal organizations, such as the Cultural Fire Management Council um, in Wichpec, California, and Northern California, along the, uh, along the Trinity, well, actually along the Klamath River, right at the confluence of the Trinity and the Klamath Rivers, mm -hmm. um, by engaging in partnerships with uh, with folks like that, we're able to um, have them lead learning sessions in the classroom while our TREX team is mobilized, but then also go out and talk to subject matter experts in the field, oftentimes the elders who have been practicing fire for their entire life and can speak to um, fire practices of their parents and their grandparents who they learned from. And then, and then going out and kind of following their lead and participating in planned burns or prescribed fires that have the focus or goal on some kind of um, culturally relevant aspect of the work. That's awesome. Are you able to do that on most, during most of your programs? Are you, are you able to incorporate, incorporate that during most of your events? Uh, no. We're, I would say we probably are actively doing it. Well, 
25% of our events have a really strong component of traditional ecological knowledge or indigenous practices or learning about indigenous practices and integrating with local tribes. Um, about half of the events have some kind of classroom learning, um, but based on where where we are burning and the partnerships we're engaged in the partners we're engaged in, we don't always have that opportunity. Right, that makes sense. And again, changing course a little bit, but this is uh, this is actually my last question. I'm curious, what has been the most fulfilling part of running this program? Like, what kind of keeps you doing it? The people we get to work with, um, hands down. Uh, you know, I was just thinking as I was answering the last couple of questions that, you know, I feel like I'm going down this um, agency centric uh, rules and policy driven path. But really what excites me most is is getting to meet the men and women who are uh, very familiar with fire and they have their own fire stories. They talk about how they learn from their parents and their grandparents, how they've gone out on this same mountain or this same pasture, um, you know, for their whole lives. And they've gotten to do this fire work. And so oftentimes the only firefighters or fire practitioners that that we get exposed to are the ones that we see on TV. Um, you know, the ones who are talk talking on a radio and directing air tankers or moving crews across the mountain. Um, using big equipment and have you know all of the latest uh, personal protective equipment, um, but really the men and women who are out there burning their own properties, they're still they're still wearing cotton non-flammable clothes and they're still paying attention, paying very close attention to the weather, but they're also paying attention to the life cycle of the plants and the animals that they're working around, and the smoke impacts of their community, and so getting to talk with uh, some of the basket weavers in Northern California. When, when they come up to you and you're working on some of their land and putting fire back and they have a big smile across their face and they're thanking you, or when you're out in Nebraska or out in Kansas and you're getting to work with the ranchers and the men and women come out and thank you for being out there and helping them get fire back into their place, um, that, that is definitely the, the most rewarding and the, and the most exciting that, uh, that, that the work gets. And that's it for our first episode of Living with Fire. I appreciate you listening in, and I hope you enjoyed learning a bit more about how Jeremy and the Trex program are revolutionizing prescribed fire's place in our communities and the forests that surround them. My ask for you today is to share this podcast with one friend who you think might like it. Whether that's someone who works in fire, enjoys public lands, or lives in a fire-prone area, my hope is that they'll enjoy learning more about fire and the ways we all interact with it. For now, I'm signing off. Thanks for listening, and I hope to catch you on the next episode.